And so as you look at the screen, you'll see that the, the, the title of this sermon is Understanding the Lord's Supper, Succeeding Passover. And that's what this is about. Because you understand when Jesus was together with the, with the disciples that night before he would be taken into prison and ultimately crucified, he was celebrating the Passover. And that would be the last time, the last time that God intended the Passover to be celebrated. From that time forward, God had changed the covenant. The old covenant would be replaced by the new covenant. And so it's important for you to be aware of that uh, even as, as we begin to speak to a world that's lost, understanding truly what God has done for us. And so first of all, the question is, what is the Passover? What is that about? Well, you know that uh, the uh, Jewish people were taken out of captivity in Egypt, uh, and Moses led them out of captivity. They were there for 400 years. They went there voluntarily as they were serving, uh, looking to, have to be fed from famine, uh, they, were, they were the family of Joseph. Joseph was the prime minister of Egypt, and so he took his family in. There were probably under 100 people that were there that, that came and resided in Egypt. And God protected them for 400 years, and that group of under 100 people eventually became 3 million Jews. Can you imagine? In 400 years. That's how much God protected them. And so unfortunately, uh, the last 50 or 75 years of their stay had become very oppressive. Uh, and the Egyptian people had put them into slavery. Uh, and they had been relegated to the brick pits. And they had to make bricks for the, the building of the pyramids. And so finally, God had called Moses to go back there and to bring his people out of captivity. And so Moses goes back there, and you know the story that he tells Pharaoh to let my people go, and there are nine famines, nine famines that God puts on Egypt to touch the heart of Pharaoh. And Pharaoh resists, and he refuses. And so here's the first lesson of the day, that God has a judgment for sin. Don't ever forget this. God has a judgment for sin. And so he gave Pharaoh time. He allowed him time. But famine after famine, plague after plague, until finally God said, enough is enough, it's over. And so this night, he told Moses, this night, uh, the angel of death, the angel of death will pass through the Jewish people. And if you look on the screen, you'll see uh, Exodus chapter 12, verses 12 through 13. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment, and underline that, on all the gods of Egypt, I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. Notice the emphasis on the blood, on the blood. God is making it clear that when the blood is put on the doorposts, and theologians say when that blood was put on the doorposts and on the side of the doors, it became clearly a cross. Can you imagine that? That the sign of the cross was there in, in Egypt on those doors. And so as the angel of death descended and went through the streets in the houses, any, any house that had the blood put on that was spared. There was no death. But every single other place, not only uh, people, but animals, firstborn would be struck down and death reigned in Egypt. 
uh, because they did not, did not accept the will of God. And so that became an ordinance that the Jewish people were told that they had a responsibility to celebrate the Passover every year as their most, most holy feast day, that that was a day that they had to remember what God did for them and how he brought them out of Egypt and how he spared them and how the blood of the lamb, the innocent lamb, without any mark, without any blemish, was to be used. And so, really, it became a clear understanding of the covenant of God. And if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul speaks about this. And he then talks about what happens, how God took that, and how God then morphed it into the Lord's Supper. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. And I want you to recognize the fact that Paul wasn't with Jesus at the moment that he celebrated the Lord's Supper. Paul came to faith a couple of years earlier, later, excuse me. But through the Holy Spirit, Jesus effectively showed him this is what took place. And you can imagine the power of the Holy Spirit. For I received from the Lord what I passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. That was the new Passover. The Passover had ended. The old covenant had ended. This was the beginning of the new covenant. And so here Jesus is celebrating, celebrating this Passover with his disciples. And there are four cups of wine that are consumed during the Passover. And Jesus took the third cup and substituted what we just read uh, in terms of what his body was about and what he was doing at that time. And so continuing on uh, as we understand this. And so he said, remember this, do this in, in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup. Uh, and he said, do this also when you drink of the cup, uh, that you understand that you are drinking of the cup in remembrance of me. And, and there he says also, in the same way after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And that's what we're going to do today. We are proclaiming the death of Jesus Christ. We are celebrating him. We are honoring him. We bow before his throne as we understand what he did for us. That because of what he did on the cross, because of what he was doing at the Lord's Supper, we are forever reminded of the importance of his death. This is our Passover. This is the importance of what Jesus did. There's no more looking for a lamb without blemish. He is the unblemished lamb of God once and forever, for all time, for all time. He is our lamb. And so we bow before his throne as we understand this. And so this becomes so important for us. And so immediately after celebrating his Lord's Supper, what did he do? They sang a hymn, the Bible tells us, and then they went to the Garden of Gethsemane. And shortly thereafter, Jesus was arrested and taken into custody. And look really what John the Baptist said. When he saw Jesus, the first time when he saw Jesus, when Jesus was coming to be baptized, through the Holy Spirit, John the Baptist said about Jesus in John chapter 1, verse 29, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Amen. There it is, the recognition. He is the Lamb of God. He is the perfect sacrifice. No longer do you go 
year after year after year and have ritualistic animal slayings. But instead, once and for all, you understand what Jesus does, the perfect lamb. And so here's the thing. Jesus fulfilled innumerable Bible prophecies, innumerable Bible prophecies. One of the more important ones is Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. At the Garden of Eden, when, Jesus, when God himself pronounces a judgment on Satan, and what he says there to Satan at that time after Adam and Eve had fallen into sin, he says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And that's exactly what happened. And we know Jesus will eventually crush the head of Satan. He will wipe Satan out. Satan will be defeated. Yes, Satan has taken his licks. Satan has imposed some of his will, certainly even to this day. But we know, we read the end of the, end of the story, and we win, and Satan loses. And so this becomes important for you to understand this. And so this becomes uh, uh, critically important for you to recognize that a new covenant has been created. The Passover is done. The Passover has been completed. God pronounced it finished, all right? Uh, and that should have been the last time Passover was ever to be celebrated. Thereafter, Passover was replaced by the communion table, by Lord's Supper. And so we recognize that there's a new covenant. And look at what, what uh, Jesus says in Luke 22, verse 20. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. The new covenant, not the old covenant, the new covenant, the promise of God, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for you in every way. And there's a great passage that explains this so well. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 8 through 13. You see it on the board. And there it says, but God found fault with the people and said, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember the sins no more. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. Do you realize what God has done for us? He's taken the old covenant, which could never be lived up to which could never be responded to because the moment they would walk away from the Passover, they would sin all over again. And they'd go to the day of atonement and the day after they would sin. It didn't matter how many lambs or goats or bulls they slayed. The sinning continued year after year after year until God said, that's it, it's over. I am calling that obsolete. Now there is a new covenant in which God himself, Jesus Christ, will be put on a cross, that perfect Man, man, God will one time, one time and forever uh, sacrifice himself for us. And that's what we celebrate today. 
That's what this is about. That's why this is so special. And so the Lord's Supper is not a passive memorial. I want you to understand that. This is not a passive memorial. Uh, Jesus made it clear to his disciples that we were to do this whenever we did it in remembrance of him. Uh, it is an act of remembrance. And Jesus said there, there in Luke 22, verse 19, and he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so it becomes a memorial that we are to remember every single time we take the Lord's Supper. We don't go about it cavalierly. We pray before we take it. We ask God to search our heart. We make a commitment to God to become more like the kind of man and woman he wants us to be. We ask him to wash us of our sins, to forgive us, and to help us to be joined to the body of Christ. It is a memorial, first and foremost. Don't ever forget that. That's what it's about. Secondly, it is an occasion of thanksgiving. Uh, the Lord's Supper should be at a time when we give thanks to God and thanks to Jesus Christ for what he did. Can you imagine that the God of the universe, the God of the universe would do this sacrifice for us and let us join at the communion table with him? That is your God. Nobody has this kind of relationship with God. That's what separates us from the world. There's no other place that you can come to a communion table and be having thanksgiving with God Almighty. It's only through uh, the communion table, and you recognize it. He has saved us, and we have a responsibility. And third, it is a public proclamation. Let me make sure you understand it. A public proclamation, meaning we are telling the world who Jesus was. We are teaching the world about our commitment to Christ. We are teaching our children and our grandchildren and our families and our neighbors. We are telling all of them what Jesus means to us, and we are doing it, proclaiming it through the elements of communion. That is why I say that if you've accepted Jesus Christ, uh, I don't care where you go to church, you're part of the body of Christ, and we, we invite you to take this communion with us because it's important. It's critical. If you're a Christian, you must take communion. You can't walk away. You must attach yourself to the body of Christ as you understand this. And so this becomes key, just as the Jews were told that they had, a, they had an obligation to, pro, to publicly proclaim God through the Passover, we have an obligation to publicly proclaim Christ through the Lord's Supper. Uh, and further, it is the new covenant. The old has been replaced by the new. Passover no longer exists. Passover has been completed. It has been surpassed. It has been taken place in its place. Jesus Christ died. Uh, and so we have that new covenant. And so in declaring to those around us that, the, that Jesus Christ has done this, look basically at Matthew 26, uh, verse 28. See what Jesus said. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. There it is. That's what this is about. It's the blood of Christ being poured out for us to wash our sins, just as God did it with animal sacrifice at the, at the Passover, he's now replaced it with the new covenant once and for all. One sacrifice, once and for all, Jesus Christ and his, and his blood. And such an incredible understanding of that. 
And so we have to declare to the world that this is the covenant. This is what controls. Look at Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 to 15. Again, speaking about what it means to have this new covenant. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. Having canceled the charge of the legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Can you imagine the greatness of those words? That God has taken your sins away as far as the east is from the west, and he publicly triumphed over the forces of evil, even as they were arrayed on him in the Garden of Gethsemane. And it said that he sweat drops of blood because they tried to kill him. The forces of evil wanted him to stop dead in the Garden of Gethsemane. And yet Christ was protected by God because he knew what he had to do. He had to go to the cross. The cross was key. The cross meant everything. That was the nature of his mission in every possible way. And so we recognize that what he did for us is so incredible. And so when we celebrate this, that we remember all of this, we know his sacrifice, we know what he did. And one of the things that we're saying in the celebration of the Lord's Supper is that we expect him to return. And I can promise you this, he will return. He will come back. He will be back. And when he comes back, he isn't coming back as the baby in the manger. He's coming back as the lion of Judah. And every knee will bow. Every knee will bow throughout the entire world. That is your Jesus. This is what we celebrate when we do this. And so look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26. For whenever you eat the bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is part of what Lord's Supper means. We haven't talked about this often in church, but that's what it is. That's what you're proclaiming. Jesus is coming back. I believe he's coming back. And I want everyone in this room to know that, and I want everyone in this world to know it. That's what we do. That's how we celebrate what God is doing. And then furthermore, it becomes a moment of self-examination. And make no mistake about it. This is clear. This is why we don't do it every single week. We don't want it to get into a ritual. We want to reflect really what this sacrifice means. What was Jesus doing at that Lord's Supper? And every time you take the Lord's Supper, you have to self-examine yourself. You have to ask God to look at my heart, Father. Wash me. Take away my sin. Help me to be a better man. Help me to be a better woman. Take anger and strife and disunity away from me, Lord. Let me be aware of my shortcomings. That's the prayer that we make. Look, we know that we're not perfect. The church is here because it's a hospital for sick people. We recognize we're sick. The difference between us and those out in the world is they think they're perfectly fine. But we know we're not. And we know that but for the grace of Jesus Christ, we would never be saved. And so this becomes an important part of self-examination, uh, bowing before God. And so as you, as you understand this and you come to terms with this, you recognize that this is the importance of what's taking place. 
And so we do this. And so you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, verses 18 to 22, and Paul was writing to the Corinthian church, which had become a mess. The church was divided. The Lord's Supper became a, 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 a series of factions. People didn't honor Christ the way they should have. And can you imagine that this is only about 10, 15 years after Jesus celebrated the event? But you see how evil can get into a church. You understand? And that's the responsibility of each and every one of us to call out evil, to call out sin, and to make it right and before the throne of God. That's what God is calling us to do. And so look at this Corinthian church. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 18. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt, there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then when you come together, it is not the Lord's supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. And as a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Can you imagine that this is in church? All right? Don't you have homes to eat and drink of? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. That's the problem of what was taking place at the church even within that short period of time after the death of Christ. And so what you see here, what you recognize here, is that this self-examination comes not only with us, but in the church. We have to look at the church, and we have to call the church to justice. And so if you see something that's not right, you prayerfully you ask to have God anoint you and speak about it, because we cannot allow evil to take place in church, all right? And so when you come to the communion table, when you bow before God, that's what you're asking God to do, to illuminate you and to, and to unite the body of Christ, uh, to recognize that we need to be uni unified, Look, as we understand this, this becomes a critical element of sharing, uh, that there needs to be a unification within the church. That is another important part of the Lord's Supper. Unity within the body of Christ in the church. What does it mean? It means that we, as a church, the gathering in Naples, are unified. We are together. We serve, we serve God. It also means that we want unity within the universal body of God and Christ throughout the world, through all the churches. They need to have unity, all right? Because here's the thing. If a church is taking the Holy Supper, and within that church there are factions and divisions and evil and backbiting and persecution, they're violating the will of God. You understand? They're violating the will of God, all right? This is a serious thing. That is why the Corinthian church suffered illnesses. You realize this? I mean, when I reflected and prayed about this, I, I was wondering, what was it? Why was the Corinthian church suffering like this? It was suffering because they didn't take the Lord's Supper with the right degree of spirituality. This is a big deal. There is no greater deal than this. You need to be sober and vigilant when you do this. This is an important thing for you to understand. And so God is calling us to be unified. I want you to look, if you would, to Ephesians 2, verses 13 to 18, as Paul speaks about this very issue. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been bought, brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace 
who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. By one spirit, we are unified together. That's what it signifies when we take the Lord's Supper. We are one people. There no longer is Jew and Gentile. There no longer are races. And furthermore, when you see this, then you recognize how ridiculous it is when we raise issues like the woke church. You understand? There is no woke church. There's only the church of Jesus Christ. And don't ever forget that. Really, folks, this is a message you need to articulate when you leave here. This is what God has called you to do. This is the essence of what we're going to do today when we bow at the communion table and take communion and ask God to unite us. And so you see this. Also, I want you to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9. God is faithful, who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so there it is. There it is. We are together. We are fellowshipping together. We are proclaiming his death. We are expecting him to return. We are unified as a people. We bow before his throne. We ask that we be washed. We are self-examining ourselves. We are asking to be forgiven. And every one of you that approaches the communion table in that way will have your sins forgiven. Every single one of you. I can promise you that because that's what Jesus said. And that's the, chair, the, the point. And so no church in the history of the world would ever, ever be able to celebrate communion properly if they were ripped apart by division and by anger, by strife, and by hatred. Never, never. And so we have to pray that the world takes consideration of this. This is an important step as we approach the table today. We're asking God to anoint our minds and our hearts. And so at this time, I'm going to end the sermon, and we're going to now take the elements of communion.